as Luther said, there's a sin beneath the sin. And so in this session, what I want to do and for us to experience re-evangelization is to, to look underneath the defeater and to discern where there might be a more insidious defeater in three areas. Church planners, so that's us. Um, the church itself, and then the culture. Okay, so let's look at re-evangelization through those three areas. Uh, church planners, the church, and culture. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we, we, <laughs> man, it's amazing, Father, that we even say, I am the God who was, who is, and is to come. We thank you for your persuasive, redeeming grace through the power of the Spirit that's alerted us to the inestimable riches of Christ in the gospel. We thank you. Thank you for for being a gracious God. Pray you'd bring a spirit of refreshment as we think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Church planners, you know, often when we go to conferences, or we connect with other church planners, you know, often one of the questions we ask is, hey, man, how many are you running? Uh, what, what are your numbers like? I mean, not that numbers matter, but what are you running? <laughs> well, if they didn't matter, why are you asking? Right? Uh, we like to count things in America, Right? Um, we like to count disciples. We like to count converts. We like to count missional communities. Yeah, you thought you got past the counting when you did missional community church, but you count missional communities. All right, we like to count services. How many services you got? Like, man, if I had a dollar for every how many, I, I'd be a rich man, right? Uh, we love to count campuses. Uh, whatever you're into, we count them, Right? And uh, after my first year of church planting, I looked up in Austin. We, we had a small band of people that were gathering in our living room. Uh, my wife and I had parachuted in from Boston to Austin because it rhymes. And uh, we, were, you know, we, were, we were asking two big questions. Where is the city broken and how does the gospel address its brokenness? And we were doing this in a community. And, and, and we, we didn't want to launch a service. We wanted to cultivate a community. And so we ate a lot of home-cooked meals. Probably did a lot of the cooking until they caught on that this was a community and not a buffet, you know, so, um, and so we, we ate together, we laughed together, we, we formed a vision together around Christ, and we asked those big questions, and, you know, I moved all the way across the country because I wanted people to meet Jesus, right, uh, just like you. You, 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 the reason you step out in faith to pastor, to plant a church, uh, to engage in the, the ministry of the gospel is that you want people to encounter Jesus Christ our Lord which incidentally, that's the most concise expression of the gospel. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Massive theology in there. That's what we're promoting. Right? We get to promote that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so here I am. Um, we're a year in. I look up. We've got one convert. I'm like, man, I didn't move across the country for one convert. So I, I began interrogating myself. Man, maybe it's our methods. You know, maybe I'm just, you know, Maybe I'm full of unbelief. I don't know, but I moved across, you know, and then it got really ugly, suffering. People started accusing me of money laundering. I'm like, if I'm going to launder money, it's going to be more than like 20 people in my living room, you know? Um, you know, kind of virulent hate speech coming through emails. Uh, my, fa my family's challenge, spiritual warfare, uh, 
man, we're, we're not making anything. I don't know how we got a loan for the house. Oh, yeah, they didn't check your income back then, <laughs> right? Um, like, we're, we're, it's hard, right? Church planning is hard. The mission of God, is, it's, it's hard. It's hard work, financially, spiritually, emotionally. And, and, and I'm looking up, and I'm wanting to count some converts, and we've got one. Well, then it looks like he boots the faith, so we're back down to zero. I'm feeling really good. I'm feeling encouraged as a church planner. In the year, going into year two, how many converts you got? Well, we had this guy that, you know, he, uh, well, we got zero, right? We all want to count stuff. And so um, I, I get really hard on myself. I'm like, people aren't coming to Jesus, you know? And I began to ask myself, what am I doing wrong? What are the, maybe I need to change our methods. Is it worth my family suffering through all this stuff? Like, did I just make the wrong decision to come and plant a church in Austin, Texas? Maybe we should have just stayed in Boston, right? So one in one, not a great track record. Um, and maybe you're like me. You'd be, you, you're interrogating yourself. You're in New England. The soil is hard. People aren't warm to the gospel. A lot of secularity, like we talked about earlier. And uh, man, there's just not streams of converts. You know? when, when I get to the pearly gates, there's not going to be a long receiving line for me. I haven't led a lot of people to Jesus. But, you know... People tell me that's my job, that I'm supposed to lead people to Jesus. So I guess I should be downcast, right? I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a B-class church planner, right? That's the narrative that we begin to believe. That's the story we begin to spin for ourselves, and I, I was right in the thick of that. I was ready to change the world, but I had no idea how much God wanted to change me. Church planners are passionate, visionary, apostolic kind of people, ready to change the world, but had no idea how much God wants to change them, to display the riches of his grace and patience and love in our lives. Well, I was beginning to learn that. Um, it's often that church planners come up with some really audacious phrases for their church, like, uh, you know, blankety-blank church starting a movement that changes the world. You, oh, really? You're going to start a movement that changes the world? I thought that already got started by Jesus, right? <laughs> You know, some of the names of churches are just ridiculously audacious, as if you could change the world, right? The, the vision statement is so big, it would require the entire planet to accomplish what your church is going to do for all of us, right? We want to be significant. We want to make an impact to the kingdom, and we overestimate our value. We overestimate our prospectus. And here I am looking at my prospectus, looking around. There's one convert, zero converts. You know, what do, what do I do? Audacious. I think this whole movement theology and the idea that church planting is to make disciples who make disciples, I think there is some biblical warrant to that. You do have agricultural metaphors in the Bible that point to the reproductivity of the gospel. But I think we've taken that and we've made it a an idol. It's a God you serve. Hey, I'm, I'm starting a movement. Hey, I make, how many multi-generational discipleship you got going in your church? So-and-so disciples, so-and-so, so-and-so. That's the new sexy. That's, that's the new legalism. You know, how many churches have you planted? Yeah, I know you're a church plant, but how many churches has your church planted? Right? And it's good to plant churches, and it's good to lead people to Christ, and it's good for people who are disciples to make disciples, but it's really bad master. And I was, I was encountering that in my first and second years. People weren't coming to Jesus, and I was hard on myself, and, 
And I, I've, I've, I've struggled, you know, with my worth in the kingdom. And, you know, are we doing the right thing? It's because I had the wrong master. You know, master movement or master mission is a really bad master. When you fail master movement or master mission, he comes along and he mocks you, right? He tells you you're not a good enough Christian, you're not a good enough pastor, you're not a good enough this. You fall down on the ground like you're on the ground, kind of like, you know, just trying to cope as a pastor, as a, as a disciple of Jesus. And master mission just, just kicking on you. Where's your converts? Where are your church plants? You might as well hang it up, spits on you. But then we've got Master Jesus. Now, what does Master Jesus do when you fail him? When you're not the, the, the poster child of the missional movement, what does he do? Well, he doesn't abandon you. He doesn't spit on you. He doesn't kick you. And let's say, let's say we're just afraid and we're not sharing the gospel. Maybe you're convicted in that first session. Maybe you're, you're putting your hope in your services or in, in other people, and, and you're not being faithful to, 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 to give an answer for the hope that's within you. And you feel some conviction. Well, what does Jesus, does he kind of go, you're an evangelistic failure. Shame on you. No. Okay, Master Mission mocks you and spits on you and kicks you. Master Jesus goes, let me die for you. Master Jesus is merciful, Master. Master Mission is a terrible Master. And some of you need, need, to, need to return to your true master in this thing called church planting, Master Jesus, who is infinitely more merciful than Master Mission. You need to come on back to Jesus and, and receive his enduring approval regardless of how many people you've led to Christ. I don't care how many services you've got. Jesus doesn't think more of you or how few converts you have. Jesus doesn't think less of you. Jesus full affection and approval lands on you because of what he did, not what you did or did not do. And that we need that re-evangelization. We need that gospel to enter our orbit. Now, as we, as we continue on in this effort of, of planting churches and making disciples, I think it's important to recognize our God-given limitations. Remember that start a movement church planner, which I'm sure none of us know? Um, we need to recognize that God gives us limitations, right? There's even a Bible verse for that. There's more than one. Ephesians 4 says that the Spirit gives us gifts according to the measure of grace. And some of us are looking around other pastors and leaders and church planners and going, man, I, I should be speaking at that conference, you know? Um, or I, why aren't I on the circuit? He got a book deal? Man, I should have, I, I got several books. Why aren't, why aren't my books published, you know? Uh, oh, he's training at that conference? Like, dude, I could do that. Like, I, I know what better than he did. He learned from me. He read my blog. Right? <laughs> he follows my Twitter. I don't even follow him. Right? We begin to do this comparison thing, right? And we begin to look at one another. And we're competing for affection. We're competing for attention. We're competing for approval when we've got infinite affection, attention, and approval waiting for us in Christ. And so we need to be realistic about our limitations. And we need to steward the measure of grace that we've been given. And max it out, brothers and sisters. Max it out for the kingdom of God. Do everything you can do with that measure of grace. But don't peek over and start envying or challenging or scoffing at someone else's measure of grace. Let's keep our eyes on Christ <laughs> instead of one another. So church planners need re-evangelization. We need fresh encounters with the living Christ. 
over and over again that sweetens our affection for him. In evangelism, we talk about what we're taken with, okay? Secular people evangelize all the time, right? You go to a great movie, maybe it's, uh, what's that, Spider-Man 2, amazing Spider-Man 2, so it's going to be amazing, right? And you walk away, and that movie was amazing, right? Now, now, do you keep it to yourself? Do you not tell your friends about the amazing Spider-Man 2? Right? Or maybe there's some book, and you love the theological insights you're uncovering. Do you kind of keep it to yourself? I don't want to bother people with these profound, eternal, uh, life-changing truths. I'll just keep that to myself, right? Or you, you're, you're watching uh, playoffs, right? And your team wins. Uh, I can't get excited and like, yell for my team. That would be offensive to my friends, right? No, we don't do that, right? We all talk about what we're taken with. We tell our friends about our, the books and the movies and the team, and we glory in the statistics and all of this stuff. And then when it comes to Jesus, we don't talk about Jesus. We don't glory in the theology of Jesus because we're not taken with Jesus. So if churches are going to move forward in this grand task of evangelization, they've got to have fresh encounters with Jesus. Right? I need fresh encounters with Jesus. I was at Starbucks, and uh, unfortunately, because we didn't have a Dunkin' Donuts, and um, I was working on my sermon, and this Asian businessman comes in, sits behind me. He's kind of a, you know, a jocular fellow, just kind of, hey, hey, you know. This. And uh, he said, hey, what are you doing? It's like, oh, perfect. Uh, I'm working on my sermon. And this is not, I'm not going to embellish, okay? Um, he says, don't preach to me. Don't preach to me. Like in Starbucks, waving his hands. All right, you're called out. There's no relational evangelism left, right? You might as well stand up and give him a Whitfield sermon because here we go, right? And he's saying, don't, what's he thinking? Don't preach to me. Don't preach to me. He's thinking, preach mounds up guilt. Preaching mounds up guilt, but good preaching relieves guilt in Christ, right? So what do I do? Oh, don't worry about that. I wouldn't do that. Well, dude, you blew that. This brother thought preaching was about performance and legalism, and you just left him there. Why? Because I had a defeater that I didn't want to be preachy, and it's a good concern, but there's a defeater underneath the defeater, and it's called the fear of man. The Proverbs tell us, 20, Proverbs 29, the fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. I was caught in the trap of what anonymous Asian businessman thought of me instead of resting in what God and Christ thinks of me. Fresh encounters with Jesus. That's the antidote to the defeater underneath the defeater. Uh, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, we have a uh, kind of conversation with Paul and the Ephesian elders. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He calls them, loves these guys, poured his life into them, uh, spent three years with them. They have a little rendezvous, wants to give them some last words. You know, we're almost at the end of Acts, so we've got an older and a wiser Apostle Paul, right? In Acts 20, he begins to, just, to, to, to exhort and encourage these elders. Kind of picking up around verse 17. He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. I lived among you. That's discipleship. Sharing your life and sharing the gospel. That's discipleship, right? Sharing life and sharing the gospel. Paul did it all the time. He didn't hide in the closet, you know, making his sermons up. And then descend every once in a while to give body, you know, theological platitudes from Romans. He shared his life with people. The long road of relational evangelism. 
That was part of Paul's ministry. So here he is. Uh, I've lived among you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials. Church plan, there is suffering, right, in the kingdom. That happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul was an evangelist. He may or may not have the gift of evangelism, but he was evangelizing. I'm not, I don't have the gift of evangelism, but I heed Paul's words to do the work of an evangelist. He goes on, he continues to talk to them about the role of the Spirit in his life and his sufferings. And he gets down to this verse, it's probably, you probably haven't memorized, verse 24. He says, in contrast to the sufferings, he says, where you would want to preserve your life, he says, but I do not account my life. There's that word count. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Got an older and wiser Paul here. He's looking back on his ministry, those elders that he trained, the church he planted, churches he planted, and he has an opportunity to, uh, to reflect on the numbers, right? And I, I find it very interesting that he does not enumerate how many people he led to Jesus. He does not count how many baptisms he was involved in. He doesn't count how many house churches he started. He doesn't even count how many churches he planted. And he's the church planting poster child. Well, what are you going to count on, Paul? He doesn't count on valuing his life. Now, that might sound ascetic. Come on. You don't value your life, Paul? Well, look what he laid it out. He didn't value his life because he knew he had infinite value in Christ.